Old Testament narrative. We are going uh, to 2 Samuel chapter 1. So please do turn there. I think it's on page 254. 254, 2 Samuel chapter 1. Sorry, I don't know why it's doing that exactly. Last night, uh, my boys, uh, we had a chance to head out and do a moonlight uh, boat ride. Anyone done this before? Gone out on the water at night? Uh, it's, a, it's a really cool experience. It was thanks to uh, Ken Dodge, who is part of our church. He's not able to be here. He definitely has a work of necessity. Uh, he's a firefighter, for which we're grateful. But uh, he took us out on his boat, and we headed out to the mouth of the, the South River, the North River, converging there and going out a little ways into the ocean. And it is, it is truly amazing. It's also uh, amazing to think about the fact that there once was a time uh, when people you know, navigated on the water at night uh, simply by way of the storm. Think about that, right? Uh, that you could simply look at different constellations and uh, navigate. You, you know, we, we think about that in, in rel- relative to our day. You, you can't even head to, you know, a neighboring town, you know, to a, a restaurant without using your GPS nowadays. And uh, lo and behold, people would, you know, go to a totally different continent looking just at uh, the stars and the planets in the sky. Why do I highlight that? Well, I, I highlight that because you, you need some basic foundational knowledge of those stars of the constellations to do any, any form of navigation. Um, and it's, it's very much the same way when it comes to navigating uh, God's word. And so I, I want to start today as we go back into Old Testament narrative to, to kind of try to capture some things uh, by way of review and, and to kind of orient ourselves. You know, it's sometimes amazing to think about not only what God has created and done, but even to think and to consider the fact that we have figured out a way uh, to understand it and use it. Does that make sense? Like, it's one thing to say that there are these constellations in the sky um, that, are, that are, you know, many, many light years away. And, and yet it's, it's, pretty, it's pretty remarkable that humans have figured out a way to navigate on the basis of that, right? Like, there's so many things that I look at in creation. I go, that's really cool. It's also awesome that humans have figured out a way to leverage and utilize and to control, in some way control, uh, to, to, to essentially uh, harness some of these things and utilize them. It testifies, doesn't it, to the fact that we're, we're made in God's image, that we have the ability to, to recreate and to discover and to compose and to, to do ingenuitive things um, as the pinnacle of God's creation I say again, part of this is to understand how to navigate the Old Testament, to understand God's word in, you know, many, many years removed, right? Because you think about it, right? You, you need some understanding of key figures and themes and promises in order to kind of orient yourself to navigate. And the reason that we do that is because God's word is filled with history and poetry, and a lot of other things in between, and it is for us God's self-revelation. And just like when you're trying to navigate uh, using the stars or trying to, to identify something, it's very easy uh, to, to, you know, to quickly you know, locate the North Star, Polaris, and that one's 433 light years away, and yet it stands out, and it's very consistent, and it's very bright, And in the same way, and in many ways, there are things in Scripture, there are figures and uh, events and ways that stand out. One of those is the institution 
of the king in the kingdom. And that's what we see uh, so prominent in 2 Samuel. And when you come across that theme of the king and the kingdom, we know it is pointing us uh, to something uh, greater. It is pointing us to something that is uh, important, the unfolding, the kingdom of Israel were God's people. The king they had appointed was David, but the ultimate king, the anointed one, uh, thousands of years later, uh, now thousands of years back, is the person of King David, but then the person and work of Jesus. One Bible teacher, Tim Chester, puts it well. He says, the writer is doing more than creating a historical record. He is writing with a purpose. What he records is never less than historical, but as we read it, we are doing much more than reading history. We are being shown who God is and how he rules his people, and we are being shown Jesus, his Christ. Some of you have figured out that this is kind of our rhythm, that each fall we head back into Old Testament uh, history, and uh, so we've, we've unpacked a great deal. And just to remind you that the, the opening five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch, the, the books that are composed and compiled by Moses, um, you know, they highlight so much. Um, and, and, you know, from creation to the fall, uh, you know, the, the curse of, of sin, to the flood, to the great patriarchs, to, to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, that we find there all kinds of rich history of how God operates. He relates to Abraham, the great uh, patriarch of our faith. Abram at the time, his name later changed to Abraham because he was a man of faith and God chose to place his favor on him and to a nation. And when God does that, he relates to us in terms of a covenant. A covenant is a a bond, a pledge, a, a promise. It's a way that God condescends to us and relates to us. He's the sovereign administrator of that covenant. He's the one who fulfills the covenant. He invites us into a covenant relationship. He did that with Abraham. And when God makes a covenant, he makes it with that person and their descendants. We see this with Abraham. When he goes to Abraham, he says his promise to them is that he will give them a a three. There's three L's. A Lord, a land, a legacy. I will be your God, Lord, and you will be my people. That I will place my affection on you. That I will, in essence... Take you in and I will be your father and you will be my people. So there's a Lord. There's also a land because I'm guiding you into a land that you will inherit that is not yet your own. That it will be a promised land for you. And then there's this promise of a legacy. So will be your descendants as as many as the, the stars are in the sky. As many as the sand on the shore. So shall be your descendants. Hard for Abraham to believe, of course, because his wife is barren. But God fulfills these promises, ultimately fulfills them. Uh, in the greatest measure in the person and work of the covenant mediator who is Jesus. Four years ago in the fall, we unpacked uh, the book of Joshua. And that's where the people of God were making entrance into the land. And they were part of God's instrument to bring justice against the Canaanites who were a wicked people who hated God and hated God's people who were a horrible influence uh, to that as well. And God, God guided them through that process with Joshua as their leader because Moses wouldn't go, was not able to go in. But unfortunately, after Joshua dies, there's this kind of ongoing downward spiral that happens that we traced uh, the next fall when we were in the book of Judges. Uh, Judges is a book where, yes, there were these rulers, these 
uh, these governors, so to speak, that God had put into place that the people of God needed. And uh, there were different men and women, and uh, they had different virtues and they had different vices. And you get to the end and you can see that we're reminded of the moral failures and the problems. It's just a reminder of the fact that, of course, life in general is, is messy and foul and complicated. And then there's this cycle of sin that creates a whole host of problems that exposes the heart of the problem. You've heard me say it before. The, the, the heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart. The heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart. At the close of Judges, which overlaps with our book here in Samuel, um, in, in that overlap, uh, what we find is at the close a refrain that's used many times in the book of, Josh, in the book of Judges. Excuse me, And it says, in those days, this is the close of Judges 21, in those days there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. There were dark days. And now begins the story, or the stories I should say, of God raising up a king for his people, which they needed and they, they themselves wanted. Uh, at different times they wanted it badly, because not because of God, but because they wanted to be like the other nations. Give us a king like the other nations. And that was partly because they weren't ready to have God be their king, and to surrender to his lordship and to trust him. But thanks be to God. God did not uh, merely uh, pull together just a collection of stories about Israel's compromise, nor just an account of the flawed judges or these fascinating uh, you know, vignettes about various uh, prophets and kings. There's this relentless story of God's covenant love, his commitment to, pres- to pursue and to preserve a people that are his own. And the last of those judges... Uh, which was the first prophet since Moses, is one named Samuel. That's who this book is named after. It's actually in the original Hebrew Bible. These 55 chapters, which weren't divided as chapters, were all one big book. The book of Samuel in the Hebrew Bible is the book of Samuel. We have it divided. We took two falls to go through First and Second Samuel, and now we're into Second Samuel. Excuse me. The first and second half of First Samuel, now we're on to Second Samuel. So I'm trying to orient us here just a, a little bit. And that is recording for us at the beginning of Samuel, 1 Samuel. It's recorded to us that there is an anointing and an, uh, an appointing of Israel's first king, who is Saul, and then later David, who is his successor. Saul had a remarkable start. Saul was, was largely uh, uh, you know, a, a great success out of the gates. But unfortunately, he lost his focus on and his faith in God he started to, to lose his mind even at the end, some would say. But all, all that was because, by and large, his unbelief, but also because he was jealous. He didn't like the fact that David got so much attention. Remember little David, right? And he is, he's, he's a young boy when Saul is at war with the Philistines again. And there's that great epic story that we covered last fall with David and Goliath. And, and David steps forward in faith and he can't even wear King Saul's armor. And so he just sets it aside and he is able to triumph over uh, this great, uh, you know, this great Philistine. And, and what do we see going on from there out? Well, David is favored. David has the king's favor. Saul likes David, loves David, gives David his own son, makes David a great commander over uh, his armies. And of course, David distinguishes himself 
And all the fame gets to continue to the, the, the praise of, of David. Saul killed thousands, they would sing. And, and David kills tens of thousands. So David has, this is what we've, you know, we've covered thus far. Even recently, as the, we closed out for Samuel, we find that David has been successful. He's been successful in, again, um, sacking some of the enemies that are a threat to the nation of Israel and their people, the Amalekites, were, were much uh, despised uh, neighbors. David has taken his, his troops. They had taken all of David's uh, and his men's wives and, and, and taken them away. And so they come back and they were able to, by, by God's strength and power, they were able to salvage this and, and spare their families and have a great victory over the Malachites. They're coming back with the spoils of war. And we read that in 1 Samuel 30. Okay? Now, that's what David knows. That's where we're at. And then it's recorded in 1 Samuel 31 that King Saul dies in a battle. And then we pick up and read uh, 2 Samuel. And that's uh, where we're going to give our attention. I'm not going to exposit all of this chapter. I'm just going to do kind of an introduction today. So today I just, you know, I'm going to be focused there. There's loads of action that we're going to uncover. Uh, and there's a, there's a degree of ambiguity for sure, in the book of Samuel, first and second Samuel. Again, this Bible teacher that was helpful for me, Tim Chester, says, We encounter in Samuel heroic loyalty and treacherous betrayals. We find people whose lives are both good and bad. We find people whose lives are ugly and beautiful, selfless and self-serving. In other words, we find people, thank you, just like us. How did you know this? That is us. But the great thing is, we also see the hand of God, who is the true hero in this story. It's not going to be David. Spoiler alert. Please stand and let's read together these opening verses of 2 Samuel. After the death of Saul, and mind you, David does not know of this. It says, when David had returned from striking down the Amalekites, David remained two days in Ziglag. And on the third day, behold, a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn, dirt on his head. And when he came to David, he fell on the ground, paying paying homage. David said to him, where do you come from? And he said to him, I've escaped from the camp of Israel. And David said to them, how did it go? Tell me. And he answered, well, the people fled from the battle. And also many of the people have fallen and are dead. And Saul and his son Jonathan are also dead. Then David said to the young man who told him, How do you know that Saul and his son are dead? And the young man who told him said, By chance, I I, I happened to be on Mount Gilboa. And there was Saul leaning on his spear. And behold, the chariots and the horsemen were close upon him. And when he looked, behold... Behold him, he saw me and called me and answered, Here I am. And he said to me, Who are you? I answered to him, I'm an Amalekite. And he said to me, Stand beside me and kill me, for anguish has seized me. And yet my life still lingers. So I stood beside him and killed him, because I was sure that he would not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the armlet that was on his arm, and I have brought them here for, for you, my Lord. Then David took hold of his clothes and tore them And so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan, his son, and for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. And David said to the young man who was who told him, where do you come from? And he answered, I'm a son of a sojourner and a Malachite. 
And David said to him, How is it you were not afraid to put out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Then David called one of the young men and said, Go, execute him. And he struck him down so that he died. And David said to him, Your blood be on your head, for your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. And David lamented with lamentation over Saul and Jonathan, his son. And he said, and he said it should be taught to the people of Judah. Behold, it is written in the book of Jasher. He said, Your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. We'll pause there. This is God's word. You may be seated. Let's ask God's help. Father, we do ask. Um, but first, we thank you. We, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this time. And we do ask your help because you know our hearts, you know our questions, you know our doubts, you know our struggles. And I ask that you would strengthen us in our weakness that we might see Jesus, the merciful, the gracious Savior and King, the mediator of this new covenant. It's in his name we ask. Amen. In some ways, I think it is rather interesting that it's this week that we learned of the passing of Queen Elizabeth, that great monarch of Great Britain. And today we, of course, remember the many victims and the heroes in the terrorist attacks on America in 9-11. At various times, we could pause with David, with King David, and say, oh, how the mighty have fallen. Like I said, this isn't going to be a a full exposition of chapter one. I I intend to kind of do an introduction to uh, 2 Samuel over the course of two weeks um, in probably two parts. But today, I want to just work through three questions, three movements here, if you would. Follow with me. Here they are. The first is, where have we been? I know I've already answered that in part. The first is, where have we been? The second is, why is there such grieving And then the third question is, where are we going? And where where have we been? Well, uh, you know, there's some other important points of reference. I've already highlighted some, but Samuel begins and ends, first and second Samuel as a whole. It begins and it ends with poetry and a song. It it begins with Hannah's song and it closes. Go ahead and read ahead. uh, It closes with David's song. And and then throughout, there's this, this rich story that we're going to dig in on. But Hannah begins things. Hannah is this woman. She's unable to have children. Uh, she's a faithful uh, woman, a follower of Yahweh. And it shouldn't surprise us, though, that she doesn't have children. And the reason that we're not surprised that she doesn't have children is because the Lord expressly told us uh, in uh, chapter 1, verse 5 and 6, that he has closed her womb. This is part of his design. And that, that's an important thing because it, it's, it's going to highlight our weakness and God's strength in these types of situations. Hannah's troubles in life are very real and they're very personal, but they also are a representation of the troubles and the need for God to intervene for his people Israel. So uh, her song becomes the song of the nation. And God loves to work with smallness. God loves to work with small uh, impossible stories, right? The people that we would say are, are marginalized and, 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 and off to the side, secondary. God makes uh, the things that are, are, are weak, strong, and lowly, high. He brings something out of nothing. God likes to work in a way all throughout history, bringing life out of death, hope out of despair. Do you believe that, by the way? 
Maybe you find yourself in a valley. You'd like to believe that, that God has that capacity, even that pattern of working. God begins with Hannah and her barrenness, and he brings life, much like he does elsewhere, with Abraham giving birth to to Sarah, Abraham's wife giving birth, Isaac and Rebekah, many other leaders throughout a redemptive history from the beginning, even up into the New Testament. We find Elizabeth, who is barren, and she conceives and gives birth to John the Baptist. Hannah is, is grieving partly because of her barrenness, um, and she doesn't just do that in a way that's, that's empty and passive and isolated. She's crying out to the sovereign God. It says in 1 Samuel verse uh, 15 of chapter 1 that she pours her heart, her soul out to the Lord. So, so there was this long-standing pattern where she would cry to the Lord for mercy. And hopelessness and helplessness are not a burden or, a, or an encumbrance in any way, a barrier to God. In 1 Samuel, it says, I mentioned this a few weeks ago, 1 Samuel 1 verse 19, it says there that God remembered Hannah. Which isn't to say, oh yeah, that's right, that, that, that girl Hannah, wasn't I supposed to do something for her? Where is my to-do list? You know, God is saying, I'm remembering in such a way that I am acting to grant to this woman and her husband a child. And so she's rejoicing at this, knowing that she is going to, to give birth to a child that is going to be uniquely set apart. He's consecrated. His name is uh, the great Samuel. He's, he, he becomes a judge and a prophet for the people uh, of God. It's part of God's, it's part of God's plan for her and for the nation because he's going to be, Samuel is the one who is the first to anoint the first king of Israel. And in second, excuse me, in 1 Samuel chapter 2, it's recorded this great song and prayer that Hannah, uh, that, that Hannah praises God for. And, and really, it's a foreshadowing of another prayer much like that from a woman who wasn't expecting to have a child, but lo and behold, she's pregnant. That would be Mary. And, and much like that prayer, Hannah, her prayer is It's not just personal. Yay me, I'm having a baby finally. It's praise God, he's bringing forth something that will be a blessing to the nations. That it will be something far reaching, far beyond wider in scale than uh, just her to capture God's character and plan and covenant and his promise. In the end of that prayer, if you were to read it, and I encourage you to do so. In 1 Samuel 2, her, her song of praise is to praise God for raising up a horn of salvation. That, that horn is a sign of, of power. It's a sign of salvation. It's a prayer all about a king. Samuel, her son, is an important piece of God's plan to bring this all about as he would anoint that king for salvation. The king that Saul first anoints, excuse me, that Samuel anoints is Saul. But Saul was the people's choice. And Samuel warns against that. No, 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 no. We want a king like we want a king like Saul. Saul is strong. Saul is tall. Saul is is unfortunately like the kings of the other nations. And that's what they wanted, and God granted that. Paul, he was tall, handsome, uh, but he was neither courageous or faithful to Yahweh and the living God. And so, as we discovered last fall. First Samuel, we found in chapter 13, Samuel said to Saul later in life, you've done foolishly. You have not kept to Saul, he says, you have not kept the commandment of the Lord, your God, by which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. 
The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. The Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. So we we know that Samuel goes and finds a son of Jesse, uh, who is the the least likely candidate by all physical appearances at the time. It's David, lowly shepherd David. And he's anointed. He's given, uh, this is a private ceremony. He is not uh, appointed in front of the nation, but he's anointed and private to be that one who would succeed and become king one day. But of course, over time, there's this growing jealousy and there's division in the nation because many people uh, love and, and cherish David and, and saw at different points can't stand David. There's, at one point, he's, he's praising David and is cherishing him as uh, this great commander of his armies. And at other times, he's envious, so jealous that he would chase after him and try to kill him. And even try to kill, you know, Saul would even try to take out his own son, Jonathan, because of allegiances that he had with David as a precious friend. And there were even times that David had a very, you know, opportune, you know, easy chance to kill and take out his his rival, knowing that it was his throne. It was it was going to be his someday. Why don't you just grab it? Remember that occasion? It's 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 a it's a middle school favorite, right? There's a cave. Somebody's going to the bathroom. Lo and behold, David is in a cave and Saul is right in front of him. And he's able to get so close that he can cut off a portion of his garment. And he holds that piece up and he says, I could have taken your life, but I didn't. And that's the story. That's the theme again and again. David does not want to touch the Lord's anointed. David wants it to be clear and obvious that it was God's doing that put him in a place of power in God's perfect time. Which leads to the next question. What's up with all the weeping? Right? I mean, verse 1, if... If you know David's vantage point here, there's every reason for celebrating, right? Because they just took out the Amalekites. They think that this is a a sweet, precious day of celebrating. They've come back with the spoils of war and wealth. In 1 Samuel 30, it's recorded. And now they pick up in, in, you know, this next chapter, they're rejoicing. But David is unaware of what has happened. And that's recorded in chapter 31. It's recorded that the Philistines defeated the armies of Israel and all the people. uh, And then the king, of course, and his son, Jonathan, are casualties of that battle. I want you to turn back and let's read it together. Chapter 31 of 1 Samuel. We'll read those first four verses. Now, the Philistines were fighting against Israel and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his son. The Philistines struck down Jonathan and Abinadab and Malkishua and the sons of Saul. The battle pressed hard against Saul and the archers found him and he was badly wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor bearer, draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. But his armor bearer would not do it, for he feared greatly. Therefore Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. Okay, did anyone pick up the, the, was anyone paying attention that picked up, something's not right here. There's something that's not adding up. There's something that, there's there's, there's, there's a discongruity why on earth would our narrator in recording Samuel take us and place us in this contradiction? Because one guy is saying one thing and the narrator is recording a different thing at the end of chapter 31. 
So who killed Saul? Well, Saul, the narrator's to take the day because, uh, I mean, that's what happened at the end. But this guy, this Amalekite, who's a sojourner, who comes, he has something in mind. He comes to David. He maybe saw it all transpire. And then he wants to go. He grabs the crown. He grabs the armlet. And he wants to go to David and tell David what he thinks David wants to hear. Does that make sense? And then David, it is not an unjust thing. It is a just thing that David says, you should not take the life of the, of the, kings, you know, the king, the, the Lord's anointed. You had no business doing that. Now, of course, he's actually ironically being killed for being a deceitful liar. Although, you know, David, David understands him. David knows him to be a murderer. It's actually that he's a liar that he wanted to come and say, David, aren't you excited? Uh, your arch enemy is gone. He's been chasing you. You can now live. You can now be the king. Aren't you? Where's my reward? Anyone? You know, where's, where's, where's my, you know, where's, where's the benefits for me? No, you're to die. David knows well that he will be the Lord's anointed. He doesn't want, he wants people to respect that office. And he himself is not going to seize the kingdom his own. Now back to our text, 2 Samuel chapter 1, verse 11. David, in response to this, tears his clothes, as was the custom, right? Like he's, he, he is, he's visibly showing the signs of sorrow and grief. David is grieving and he intends for other people to join him. That's why in verse 19, he says, I'm going to set up this entire song so that we could remember and rehearse the horrible day that happened in the nation of Israel when our king and his son, Jonathan, were taken out. That would have been the king and the successor. It's David's now, but David is, is taking an opportunity uh, to, to grieve. And there's something, why is he grieving? There's something that's natural and there's something that is unnatural or supernatural about this. Now, the reason that it's included here, the reason that this account is included in, in such a way, is to highlight that for the readers of the people of Israel, the readers who would discover this, they would know clear well how it is that David did not do anything uh, unjust or unrighteous to, to gain the throne and to have the crown in his hand. It was to establish his legitimacy in that. Uh, but, but the reason that he's grieving is natural in many ways. This is a, a significant blow for the people. And of course, he did care for Saul and he did especially love Jonathan, as we'll talk more about next week. The great uh, Swiss reformer, John Calvin, in preaching uh, to his people in Geneva on this very text, um, talks about how uh, this is an opportunity for us, even as we discover this chapter, we, we come across this account that this is how life works, Right. The days of rejoicing, this, the sweet moments of life often get that phone call. That, well, he didn't say phone call back in you know, 17th century Geneva, but we get bad news and good news all the time. We have these seasons where there's, there's rejoicing and sorrow intermingled, right? We can identify with this. And, and one of the reasons that's important to note is because even though we have these high moments of great joy and pleasure, and then included with them are moments and seasons of frustration and fear and anxiety and disappointment and grief. It's because it's part of the fallen world and God's design. No sooner, Calvin writes, than the joys enter our lives and there are a thousand annoyances and distresses to sap it all away. 
And why is that? So that we don't get too comfortable having our hearts tied up with the joys and pleasures that can easily turn into idols in our hearts. Your affection of God and his purposes and his glory. You should always have your heart ready, Calvin writes, for these changes, these shifts, these reversals of fortune so that you will be ready to praise God in the moments of joy and the moments of hardship. So it's entirely natural that David would be grieving. But it's entirely supernatural that the followers of God from Abraham down to this very day, brothers and sisters in Christ, that we would grieve as a people with, not without, hope. But it's even another thing for David at this particular juncture to grieve the loss of Saul because it was his, he was his enemy. It, it, it was a great distress to him. It was a constant dozens of, I mean, 15 years of being chased by Saul in all of his madness and jealousy. That's come to a close. And yet it's supernatural. It shows that even though David had every reason to rejoice and hate and despise Saul, he's walking by faith. Just as an aside, how do you feel about that? How do you feel when someone that is your opponent, your perceived enemy, that coworker, whatever, gets canned? Or someone, you know, gets their, you know, gets their due? How do we feel about that? David is a better king. David is a man of forgiveness and mercy and grace. David is a man, we're discovering here, that's why the grieving is going on. A man after God's own heart. And he reminds us, David, of an even greater king who had every reason to despise and destroy his enemies and yet entrusted all to his father, God in heaven. Jesus, even when he's misunderstood, he's falsely accused, he's suffering unjustly on a cross. What does he say? Father, forgive them. Forgive them, for they know not what they do. So where are we going? That's why there's weeping. Where are we going? Well, we're going on a journey through the life of the kingdom of of Israel and this greater king, David. And we will cover more of that by way of introduction. But we're not going to be surprised, of course, to discover that David is a sinner, that David is deeply flawed. And even on his best and most faithful moments, excuse me, on his best and most, most faithful moments, which is the, 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 the greater bulk of the first half of Second Samuel, he is pointing us to the one who is faithful, King Jesus, the greater king in the greater kingdom. And there's one particular juncture at chapter 7 of Second Samuel where it's told to David that your kingdom is going to last forever. That it is going to be established in such a way that you begin to listen to it and you go, this can't be... Just his family. <laughs> I mean, his son, who we find out is Solomon, isn't going to be as that great. He's not as great as his father, David. And he's certainly not going to carry on a forever righteous kingdom. So what is he speaking of? Except that there will come from the line of David, from the stump of Jesse, through that line, there will be a king, a descendant of David, who will reign forever. One who is not, who is faithful and who is not mortal. 
Perhaps like some of you, I read a journalist uh, covering the story of Queen Elizabeth's death this week. Queen Elizabeth, they were writing about the institution of monarchy. And unlike, this journalist wrote, unlike a pure democracy, uh, it's, uh, you know, it's a constitutional monarchy that Great Britain has. And he writes about this. It says, a monarchy has nothing to do with merit and logic and everything to do with authority and mystery. Two deeply human needs our modern world has trouble satisfying without danger. The crown represents something from the ancient past, a logical, indefensible, but emotional, salient symbol of something called a nation, something that gives its members meaning and happiness. C.S. Lewis, himself obviously a, a, a Brit, reflected on this too in a way I think that's somewhat relevant to us as Americans who don't have a monarchy, especially in our times. This is what Lewis writes, where men are forbidden, I wouldn't put it that way, a king. Uh, We're kind of glad we have what we have, but here we are. Where men are forbidden to honor a king, they honor millionaires, athletes, or film stars instead, even famous prostitutes or gangsters For spiritual nature, like bodily nature, will be served. Deny it food and it will gobble up poison, Lewis writes. Friends, we can and we will honor King David, but we will only worship the living God, just like David. David knew this. David was the only one who, uh, David, David was the one who has the greatest potential to point us that way, a true and lasting eternal king who is raised to his coming again. Do you know that king? Do you know him personally? Do you know Jesus is king of your life intimately? Are you surrendered to him? Are you, you chasing the, the, the dreams of being rich and famous or knowing people who are or just being surrendered? Or do you just enjoy being the supposed king and ruler of your own life? Once it was reported that uh, a chaplain, don't know, the, don't know whether this antidote is supported uh, historically, but Queen Elizabeth, one of her chaplains, was preaching a sermon on the second coming of Christ. Afterwards, in a conversation with this uh, Anglican uh, minister, The queen, Queen Elizabeth, said, Oh, how I wish that the Lord would come in my lifetime. Why, asked the chaplain, does your majesty feel such a very earnest desire? Queen Elizabeth replied with quivering lips and her whole countenance lit up with deep emotion. I should love to lay my crown at his feet. Perhaps you've seen over the years... Queen Elizabeth in her Christmas address. I I really enjoy this. And she will talk about the birth of a Messiah. She will talk very real about her faith in Jesus Christ. So this part I know is true because I heard it back in 2011 myself. Queen Elizabeth wrote, although we are capable of great acts of kindness, history teaches us that we sometimes need saving from ourselves. God sent into the world a unique person, neither a philosopher nor a general, but a savior with the power to forgive King Jesus. 
So adversity is coming. Grieving is coming. Some of you would say, yes, absolutely. It's very much here for me right now in powerful, painful ways. But I'm telling you, Jesus is coming back. And there will be no denial. There will be no question. Because God doesn't abandon his promises or his people. A covenant promise that requires an everlasting king and savior. We need to be saved from ourselves. That's why we pray. And we're going to pray it in unison here in a moment. Thy kingdom come. Thy will, not my will, be done. I close with this, 1 Timothy 6. I just want you to envision, right? In the the presence of the Almighty, the great King, Paul writes to Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ which he will display at the proper time. He who is blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever, has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Father, we want that to capture more of our vision and we need to die to unbelief and we need to walk by faith, pleased by your spirit. Help us to see Christ more and more in our study of history as that great savior and king who came to set us free that we might have victory in part now and in full later. Lord, I pray that you would guide us to see that resurrected, life-giving, good king, that it would turn us away from sin and self. Lord, I, I pray today for people who are burdened with grief, with sorrow, with loneliness, addiction, distress. Lord, we know that there's plenty that is tragic. There's plenty of disunity. It seems rather bleak, Lord, even as we move into Elections and thinking about leaders, help us to remember that our real governor and king is Jesus and our real citizenship is in the kingdom of God. Lord, I pray for families and communities that, that grieve even 20 plus years after 9-11. Lord, we all know some people who've experienced great trauma in the wake of all that. We pray for the first responders who were impacted and the various ones who even this very day serve our communities. We are grateful, God, and we ask that you would guide and protect them, please. Lord, we pray today for other churches that so faithfully preach the gospel and I lift up Emmanuel, the church plant in Weymouth, Pastor Dave Cuomo. I pray for First Baptist today in Situate and Pastor Stephen McDonald. Lord, I pray that you would keep these Congregations and their leadership unified and encouraged on their mission. We might together bear witness of that great king and his kingdom. Lord, I pray you'd bring repentance, renewal, revival into our own community. Lord, I pray you'd teach us that you'd grow us in our pain and in our struggles and in our disappointments. 
We pray all this through Jesus and for his sake. Even now, together, as he taught his disciples to pray, saying together, Our Father, who art in heaven,